that I would like to direct your attention to are in Revelation 1, and we'll look at just the first three verses. And there's a, there's a lot here. I think it'll be encouraging to you. John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Well, have you ever received a gift from somebody and it turned out to be more of a burden in the long run than a blessing? Maybe uh, somebody for your birthday took you out for a nice steak dinner, but you've been a closet vegetarian for the last few years and you didn't know how to break it to them. Or maybe they took you out for ice cream or something and you've been on a diet for the last few months. Or maybe your husband um, came home with a puppy that uh, turned out to be more work than help over the years. Or maybe even you got a promotion at work and that promotion ended up just demanding more time and stress that it actually was a detriment to you, more of a burden than actually a blessing. What the first verse of the Revelation make clear to us is that God did give us this book with the intention of blessing it, blessing us. Um, I think many people, sometimes as we read the book, it's, it's intimidating. There's a lot of frightening things as we imagine what the future may entail, especially for us personally. Uh, but the book is not intended to scare us. It's, it's actually intended to be a blessing, to, to be an encouragement to us. And that's very clear from the outset as uh, we look at the purpose, as it's articulated in the first verse. The book begins in, with these Greek words, Apocalypsis Yesu Christu. All three of those words are probably somewhat familiar to you. The word apocalypsis means the revelation, and of course, Yesu Christu, of Jesus Christ. Now that first word, apocalypse, apocalypsis is translated apocalypse. And that refers to something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed, much like a present, as we were talking about. When somebody gives you a present, it's, it's wrapped with wrapping paper. You don't know what it is, but you unwrap it. You look inside the box, and then you know what was in the box. And here, what is being revealed, what is opened up to us, is God's plan for the future. Again, this is made clear in verse 1. This revelation is given... To show the things that must soon take place. So the purpose is to let us know what will happen in the future. And this verse is a significant challenge for those who believe that revelation should only be interpreted idealistically. That is, as um, it's not predicting specific actual events, but just sets forth timeless truths concerning the battle of good and evil that has taken place throughout time. That's, the, that's hard to line up with this purpose statement, that it is actually given to show us what will take place soon, that is, in the future. Now, the question most scholars wrestle with, therefore, is, okay, if this is describing what takes place in the future, how soon into the future? 20 years or 2,000 years? How should we understand this word 
soon. Now, some scholars would suggest that this is a strong reason to assume that the book only pertains to uh, the years um, recently following its writing, um, that it should be limited to the first century A.D. And this view, if you recall, is what's known as preterism. And and that's a compelling argument because of the word soon. But we also have to keep in mind that when the Bible... The Bible has verbiage, especially regarding um, prophecy, that needs to be understood relatively. Uh, The timing of prophecies is very relative in Scripture. And Peter makes this point in his second letter. And and I'd like all of you, if you can, to uh, flip to 2 Peter. And we're going to read a lengthy portion of chapter 3. And because it deals specifically with end times, which of course is the subject of this book and the, and the timing of when these things will take place. Peter writes, chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly, which, of course, is what's described in Revelation. He says this in verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Don't overlook this, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Similarly, when God spoke through the prophet Haggai about the last times, He said this at the very end of that prophecy, Haggai 2.21. He says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the, the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. And uh, most scholars believe that is speaking to the last days. And he says, I'm about to do this. And that was... 500 B.C. or so. Paul told the Romans, similarly, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. Satan is still active. So when it comes to uh, the verbiage that's used about soon and um, about to and, and other phrases like this, we just need to understand it's relative. And I think the best way to understand Uh, why those words are used like soon and not sometime in the future is that the very next thing in God's plan is these things. 
He's going to bring this to fulfillment. And so somebody could ask, well, why hasn't it taken place yet? If God's, the next thing in God's redemptive plan is for Christ to return and to establish his kingdom. Well, he's waiting for the gospel to go to the ends of the world. He's having mercy, as Peter says. Um, he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he's really, he's waiting on the church to finish the task of the Great Commission. And when that's done, it will soon take place. The other, another uh, phrase that's worth looking at is the verb that John uses here in that first verse. Uh, the verb to show. Uh, it's the word esmanin. And it's the verbal form of the word sign. So uh, you, you could translate it to signify, to explain a sign. And so this is, I, I believe, suggestive as to how the book should be interpreted. As you know, the book of Revelation is full of signs. Well, what this is saying, Jesus is saying, this book is given and God gave it to John to explain or to signify what's the meaning of the signs behind what will soon take place. So Revelation, again, is loaded with symbolism, and much of that symbolism, symbolism is not, at least I don't believe, is not to be taken literally. These aren't actual uh, events or uh, like the, the, the vision of the, the dragon and the woman isn't describing an actual dragon chasing an actual woman, but it's signifying I believe Satan's attack upon the Jews and even the church, God's people. And so there's the goal here is we need to consider what is being signified in the symbols of Revelation. And I think the best way to do that is just see how those symbols are used in other parts of Scripture. Satan is called the serpent or dragon multiple times, even in Revelation. And that's why I think we should interpret that passage as... Uh, speaking about Satan and God's, his interference in God's redemptive plan. The next thing I want to pay attention to is the source of revelation. The first verse tells us where the revelation came from, not just what its purpose is. And it, it, there's a real sweet and orderly subordination uh, in this verse, you'll notice. It originally came from God, this message. God passed that down to Jesus. Jesus then gave it to angels who would give it to John, who would then give it to God's slaves so that they would know what his plan of the future is. And this corresponds to what Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13 when, he's, when they asked him about when these last times would come upon them. And he says, Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, it was revealed to him, and then from the Father, and then he revealed it to the angels, and they have then passed it on. God wants us to understand his plan for the future. It was previously veiled from Christ and his humanity, but now it's been known not only to him, but to all of us. It's also worth our notice this um, this orderly subordination, because our culture would tell us that equality is the highest moral principle in this world. That that we are most righteous when we are equal, and equity is 
what will lead to true order. But this, that idea is not a biblical idea. Um, in fact, it runs contrary to what the Bible teaches. Submission to established authorities is what will lead to righteousness and greater order. We see this, again, in how the, the, the triune God functions together. The triune God is holy and sovereign. He's completely set apart from all of creation. And even within the Trinity, the members submit to one another. The Son completely obeys everything the Father tells him to do in, in total obedience, though they are equal ontologically. They're the same essence. They're one God, three distinct persons. And the Spirit seeks to exalt the Son in what he does. So there's a subordination in how they function together within the Trinity. And this is reflected also in the angels' total obedience to God. Even though they are holy beings, complete without sin, they're not divine, they're not gods, they're created beings. And yet, although they are holy, they are also absolutely obedient to everything that God asks them to do. They deliver God's messages and they serve those uh, whom God seeks them to, uh, calls them to serve. And because... Because they're holy and because they're obedient, they're great mediators. They're excellent at delivering those messages and they're, they serve a great role because they can, again, they're intermediaries between the sovereign holy God and man. They can speak to men without being overwhelmed by the presence of God. And this is also in, reflected in the instruction being delivered to an appointed apostle who then is, it delivers it to God's slaves. So, the, the role of the angels is interesting. Um, a number of times in Scripture, it says the angels participate in the giving of Scripture, in particular their law. Although it's the, their participation in the giving of the Torah, the first five books of the law to Moses, isn't narrated in the Bible. It is indicated that that was their role in Acts 7.53. In fact, we'll look at that Sunday. Stephen says in that chapter, that the law was delivered by angels. Paul affirms this in Galatians 3.19 when he says, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The author, author of Hebrews also says that the scripture was declared by angels. Hebrews 2.2. And of course, we see in the book of Daniel, angels are, play a prominent role in the delivering of uh, messages to Daniel. And the prophet Zechariah also mentions the role of angels in receiving his prophecy, Zechariah 1.19. So God sometimes used angels to help the prophets in the writing of Scripture. But Peter also tells us in his epistle that in every case, the Holy Spirit also supernaturally empowered them in the writing of Scripture. It says in 2 Peter 2.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul could also say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is theopneustos, is breathed out by God. Every word of Scripture is God's words, and therefore profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So even in this book, when John has a vision, when he encounters the risen Christ, 
Jesus speaks to him directly. And sometimes also you'll have angels who will tell John what to write and explain the significance of the visions he sees. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is also assisting John as he pins the actual words onto whatever medium he's using, papyrus or whatever, so that everything that John writes down is perfectly, exactly what the Holy Spirit wants him to write down. And we know this also because of how the book ends. If you recall Revelation 22:18, John says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So given this warning, you would assume John, as he's writing it, isn't adding things in or he's not taking things away. He's absolutely confident that what is written is exactly what needs to be written. And in fact, in verse 2, John says that he has borne witness to all that he saw. Nothing's been left out. We're, We're not missing anything. It's a complete revelation given to us. What John saw has been completely given to us. And so the bottom line is that we're not merely reading a book composed by an inspired individual, but we are reading God's words to us. It's as if God is speaking directly to us in his word. And this is true, of course, not only of Revelation, but of the whole Bible. But given that God is the one giving us this, rev- re- this revelation should bolster our confidence in what it says, its truthfulness, its accuracy, but also that he means for it to be understood. Again, it's a revelation. Yes, it, there's a lot of symbolism. There's some things that people disagree with on interpretation, but that's not because God's trying to be tricky. It's actually because God wants He believes this is the best way to clarify, to communicate to us what we need to learn in Revelation. Okay, we may not know who uh, the beast, the, the Antichrist, actually is. We may not know precisely what Babylon is referring to. There may be things that, like the number 666, what it conveys. There may be things we don't actually understand, but we can understand the point of what's being communicated. And God wants us to understand the point of what's being communicated, even if we don't know precisely all of the details and what they signify. Or else why would he give it to us? He wants us to understand this book. And I believe as we take seriously our our task of being interpreters, we can rightly understand it. Because he wants us to. And in understanding it, we will be blessed. Right? And that's what he says. That's the, the third thing I want to point out. The blessing of Revelation. God gave us this book so that we'd be blessed. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it. The time is near. So the book was given to bless us. You guys are blessed just by being here and hearing these words read. Uh, The word blessing, makarios, it's the same word used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and and blessed are those um, who are reviled. The same word here, it means to satisfy, to fulfill, to make happy. 
right? It speaks to receiving God's favor and God's uh, assistance rather than being under God's discipline. At the contrast of God being for you, helping you, assisting you, and God preventing your work from being fruitful. So think of how God assisted Joseph. God gave Joseph favor in Pharaoh's household. And God blessed him. And everything Joseph set his hand to do, he prospered. That's, that's describing blessing. And God's saying, blessed is the one who reads this, and best of the one who hears it and keeps it. It's what we want. I mean, that, that should be the, our primary craving, is that we would receive the blessing of God in our life. And in being blessed, we would have joy and be content. Verse 3 tells us the first kind of people who would be blessed by this book are those who read it aloud. And the reading aloud of the prophecy speaks to the practice in the early church of reading the scriptures as part of their worship service. And they they took this over uh, even as the synagogues also read aloud the scriptures. You might recall Jesus was invited to read from Isaiah the prophet. And and that's how he announced that he was the Messiah. He was the one that this was speaking of. He said, this has been fulfilled in your midst. And that pattern of, of having a scripture reading has actually been passed down uh, to our present time. We have a scripture reading. And we would consider it a critical part of the Christian worship service. That's why we even have a lengthy scripture reading and not just, you know, two or three verses. Paul exhorts Timothy in his letter, especially to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, he says. So he expects the Scriptures to be read. And we need to keep in mind the reason for this is because most people at this time period were illiterate. They didn't know how to read. Many probably might have had that, many might have had that opportunity or that ability, but many didn't. And so just by hearing would be the only way they would know what God's will for their life would be. And so it was required that it would be read. And those who hear this will be blessed. In fact, this blessing is given to the one who reads the letter also tells us that revelation was immediately understood to be a part of the canon of Scripture. Because, um, as you know, it would be the final book added to the New Testament canon. But that it would be expected to be read at, at a worship service, again, communicated. This is not just, a form, this is not just a, an informal letter, but this is actual scripture um, that, that will be passed down from generation to generation as God's word. So it's the blessings given to the person who reads the scripture aloud. But of course, any person who devotes himself to the reading of scripture is going to be blessed, right? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man whose delight sorry, is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. Right? He's blessed to the extent, verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. And this is why it's not just the one who reads the Scripture that's blessed, but those who hear it and keep it. This is the second kind of person who's blessed by John's revelation. In the Greek, that, that those words hear and keep are referring to the same person. The assumption being that the person who hears God's word will also seek to keep God's word. And this 
explains Christ's response to the woman who blessed him in Luke 11. The woman in crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. She's blessing his mother. And he says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Right? The, the, it's not just hearing it, but hearing it and keeping it. That's what brings blessing. Again, we should all crave blessing. You should want to know, how can I get a blessing from God? Well, he tells us very explicitly, hear the word of God and keep it. Hearing and keeping are frequently coupled together in the Bible. In fact, the Hebrew word is the same for both. It's the word Shema, hero Israel. That, that could be translated uh, hero Israel or uh, um, obey, O Israel. It's the same phrase. Keep the commandments, Israel. So you might recall also the, in the parable of the Good Shepherd that Christ's true sheep are those who hear his voice and therefore they are also those who follow him. They hear and therefore they follow. And in following, it's not just uh, he's off in the distance and they're following along at kind of their own pace, their own path. It's they're in step with him. They are seeking to do what he does, go, does, go where he goes. And as we work through the book of Revelation, you'll see this theme continue to be repeated. For instance, the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, is a repeated exhortation. The idea is if you, if you have ears, then it should hear what, you should hear what's being said and do something about it. You have ears for a reason, and that's that you would obey, that you would hold fast. He repeats that to all of the seven churches. This theme of keeping God's word is also repeated ten other times in the book. So, again, this tells us that Jesus does not simply want us to learn what's going to take place in the future for our own fancy and interest and curiosity. He's given us this book, not just so that we would understand what would take place, but we would do what it calls us to do, that we would be prepared. And in being prepared... We'd be blessed. He wants to bless us. That's, that's the purpose. So as Apostle James says, we need to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, he goes away, and at once forget what he was like. But it's the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see the theme. I mean, it's like throughout Scripture. In Psalm 1, it's in James, it's in Jesus' words to the woman in the gospel. Here in Revelation, the blessing comes when we hear what God says and obey it. And of course, the opposite is also true. If we hear God calling us to do something and we just justify our disobedience, we ignore it, we plug our ears, we make excuses. The effect is going to be that our hearts are hardened and it will lead to essentially a curse. God's discipline will be upon us rather than his favor. Recall also what Joshua uh, was told by God in Joshua chapter 1. He said, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then 
you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Study the word, meditate on it, and do it, and then you will be prosperous. And again, the reason a person will be blessed in the reading, hearing, keeping of Scripture is because the time for when the events described in this book is near. And again, I've already stated prophetic nearness needs to be understood relatively. However, this promise of blessing tells us specifically how we need to prepare ourselves for the events that are going to be described. Whatever we're commanded to do, we need to do it. If we read this book and seek to obey it, then the events that are described in Revelation are not something we should be worried about. This is not something that should cause us personally to fear because these are the very means that God is using to bring us indescribable blessings. They're a, a vehicle to bless you. Yes, they're real, and in some sense they're going to be horrific, but the blessing that's coming on the other end of them will be far greater than anybody could ever describe. And so we need to look at this with anticipation, not with fear. God wants us to realize this is meant to be a blessing to us, not a curse. As Jesus told his followers in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't fear. It's what God wants to give you the kingdom. And that's what's being described. The days in this book, the days, I believe, the days before the kingdom is received by the saints. And then the days that follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are such a God that, that wants to bless us. And Lord, it's, it, at times we struggle to believe it. We believe it only because you've stated it and stated it multiple times. And we struggle, Lord, because we know we don't deserve to be blessed. We produce far more harm to your purposes than good. Because we're sinners. We often seek our own glory, our own interests, rather than yours. And so we thank you that even though Lord, we don't deserve your blessing, you are a God who loves to bless. And so help us, help us, each and every one of us, to discern what we need to do so that we might be fit vessels for that blessing. And that we might actually see and experience the blessing that you promise as we study this book together as a church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.